0: multi-tenant uh, from the get-go uh, y- you should have a reason not to be multi-tenant. It shouldn't be, Oh, well, I'm going to be single tenant and then I'll figure it out. It's you no, know, no, be multi-tenant from the get-go or have a very good reason, like, I don't know, medical.
1: Hey everyone. And welcome back to the SaaS developer channel, where we learn from each other, how to build SaaS and with me today I have Jeffrey Sherman, who, oh. a fantastic staff engineer helping SaaS companies build highly performant, more scalable systems. And I want to tell the story of how he got here. So Jeffrey and I met through the SaaS community. I've mm-hmm. never seen him before. And the moment he joined the community, Jeffrey was just so helpful. He shared ideas in his blog that i found fantastic he shared his podcast which we'll talk about because it's amazing for engineers building pretty much anything and it was just answering questions having conversations just super useful in the community super helpful to everyone and fast forward a couple of months we wanted to start the sas community champions a uh, community heroes sorry and really recognize and reward the people who are most helpful in the community, really sharing their knowledge, helping everyone out. And it was a no-brainer that Jeffrey has been one of those superstars worthy of extra recognition. Welcome to the show.
0: Uh, Thank you, Glenn. Uh, It's wonderful to be here. Uh, Yeah, I found out about the community from Twitter. Uh, You were posting Uh, some great content and links on on Twitter. This is, I think, back like on episode one or two of your um, newsletter. Uh, And I was like, oh, perfect. That is the thing that I've been looking for all this time of where, you know, what's the watering hole? Where do SaaS developers hang out? Because if you just try to find them on Twitter or anywhere else, it's like it's too diffuse. There's too many developers in general who are not, like, it's hard to find the people. Uh, so as soon as you said it, it's like, oh, this is perfect. This is where I want to be.
1: That's fantastic because, yeah, this is exactly why I started the community. I had all those questions around authentication, security, network, domains, like as I said, like scalability, like all those things, architecture questions. And I had no idea how to ask it of people who are building something similar because if you ask people who are building a social network about scalability, they will have a very different ideas than what someone building know, an expense reporting SaaS application uh, would have. So it's uh, this is exactly where I started it. And when you said that you found out about the community from the newsletter, it bring, brought in my mind the idea of a flywheel, if you're familiar with the concept mm-hmm. from AWS, I think, popularized it, that we started a community and then people started sharing. I took some of the things people shared and turned it into a newsletter. Mm-hmm. And... You saw the newsletter, Join the Community, now you're sharing, now you have been highlighted in the newsletter, and I think I shared your content in at least three or four different newsletters at this point. So it kind of causes this flywheel where more more content causes more people to join the community, which creates even more good content for everyone, which causes even more people to join the community.
0: Right, virtuous cycle. Yes.
1: Yes. So... First of all, uh, congratulations of being a SaaS developer uh, hero, and thank you for everything you've done.
0: Oh, thank you. And Mm -hmm. and I appreciate this nifty keyboard. Um, It is super nice. It's clicky. Uh, When I explained to my wife that I was getting a a keyboard with uh, a heavy tactile feel, she's like, "Why why would you want that? And then she's like, wait, actually, I would love that. And then she played with it for a minute. She's like, this thing would drive me nuts. (laughs)
1: <laughs> oh. so I-, I have my own clicky i don't know if you can hear it in the recording it's a uh, i it's clicky but i think reasonably clicky my husband works in the other room and he does not complain about my extra clickiness <laughs>
0: nice
1: so um w- when you started you started conversations in the community i think one of the Early things you shared is your never rewrite philosophy so you're kind of like I'm talking about scalability iterations Mm -hmm. a lot of software engineering concept and then you're like you should never rewrite and you said it's a core philosophy never rewrite you have a never rewrite podcast which we will have in the show links so you can visit what's the thing with never rewrite I mean we're rewriting all the time
0: (laughs) Yeah, so it's a hard thing to to explain. Um, and it actually it all goes back to Joel Spadinsky in like 2001 or two. Um, from Joel on software, he has this, or it was at the time a canonical article about how Netscape decided to do a full rewrite after Netscape four. And they went dark for like a year and a half, two years, and i.e. Microsoft Internet Explorer ate their lunch. And that was it. That was the company was dead. Netscape died because they decided to do a full rewrite. Uh, So it's this classic piece now. Um, And sort of, I I was a new developer at the time when that came out. And so I was like, oh, okay. And that kind of stuck with me. Uh, And I've seen it throughout my career. So my career is more than 20 years. So I'm on the older side. Of developers and it's a repeating pattern of oh i'm going to it's not that i'm going to rewrite it all because you're always going to rewrite it all it's i'm going to stop the current system i'm going to create a new system that's going to be better in every way possible and then i'm going to cut over and then we're going to move on with the new system and things will be cakes and pies and this all it inevitably breaks down because you can't stop the old system long enough. It's not like, oh, I'm going to write the whole state to disk, and then I'm going to start the new system and read state off. It's, the two things will actually co-evolve. And so you, you'll always be chasing the, the old system. Um And so if you decide, oh, I'm going to rewrite, I'm going to redo the system, you're inevitably asking for a disaster. But it's hard to explain because it's like, okay, but I'm still going to rewrite it. Like if That was an early... Um, somebody on the internet made the comment of, oh, never rewrite. What's the solution? Rewrite. Uh, so Isaac and I, Isaac ask you, he's my co-host. Uh, we were, were playing with terminology to try and emphasize the difference, uh, between a rewrite and iterative iterative iteratively replacing things. Um, and we were settling into a, uh, ship of Theseus metaphor uh Theseus uh famously he's the guy he kills the Minotaur saves the children of Athens comes home on a ship and then in honor of him every year the Athenians take a ship out and take a pleasure cruise back to Crete or something uh and then at some point it becomes a philosophical concept of oh well they've been doing this for 300 years clearly the original wooden ship has rotted right and they've replaced as it rots they've they've done maintenance and they've replaced it and at some point nothing that was there when Theseus was there is left, right? It's an entirely new ship. And so it's this philosophical question of, you know, is this really Theseus' ship? And if so, how come? Because none of the wood's there. So that, that, so we're, we've taken the term, we're calling it Theseus' ship, because you're going to iteratively ship your code <laughs> until there's nothing left of the original. But you're Hi. never going to, to rewrite. And the, kind of the, the, glo- the golden difference is you always have a working ship. In a rewrite, you're saying, oh, this ship is old and decrepit. I'm going to build a new ship, and then we're going to use that one once it's ready. When you feces ship, you are always you always have the one ship, and you're always trying to continue to use it.
1: Interesting. So yes. I wanted to ask you, a lot of times you get the opposite advice, especially when you're doing a startup. They, people say, build one to throw away. Build an MVP as fast as humanly possible, you're going to throw it all away anyway. Don't invest too much in it. Mm -hmm. Does it, it, is it at odds with your never rewrite philosophy?
0: It depends on how you go about throwing it away. Um, And so this is also kind of the practice that I'm trying to build uh, in the developer community of you're going to build, you know, your early version of your SaaS, the one that you built to throw away, it's not going to scale. Right there's going to be things that are not performance, but you're going to find out what things are valuable to the customer. That you aren't going to, well, you shouldn't throw it away. Like you're not. Well, many companies do make this mistake of, oh, well, this is the one to throw away. I'm going to throw this one away. I'm going to build a brand new one based off the things I've learned, and it'll be better and it'll work so much better. And I'm going to build this one, and what happens is. This, it's not free. It's not like, oh, well, I spent two years building this one, you know, model A and my first iteration and I got traction and now customers are using it and I'm getting hockey stick growth and it's awesome. And now I'm going to rebuild the whole thing in two months, three months, six months. Meanwhile, the, the original one, the one that you built to throw away is crumbling. And if you don't maintain it you won't make it your company will not make it long enough for the rewrite Uh, but if you instead iteratively replace the one that you're going to throw away then yes for sure you'll make well i don't know that you will make it but it will continue to add value it'll continue to to grow with your company and you've got a much better chance of making it
1: so how do you suggest building the original in a way that will actually make it easier to throw pieces of it away over time as the company grows and evolves?
0: It, it's your standard uh, answer for most developer problems of, well, you know, it's gotta have test. You know, it's gotta have tests. You don't necessarily need to be test-driven development, but you need to know what this thing is doing. Because the flip side of that is if you don't know what this thing is doing, you can't rewrite it, right? Like, oh, well, I've got this thing. And then there's this thousand line function ball of mud and I don't know what it's going to do, but I'm going to rebuild everything about it and the framework. And then I'm going to tackle this thousand line ball of mud at the end. It's like, no, 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 no. Yeah. You, you're going to need to understand the thousand line ball of mud. You might you do it up front. Get the value from understanding what's going on because it will make your maintenance work easier during that whole transition period if you must do a rewrite because you're yeah. going to have to do it eventually anyway.
1: So I would say that you cannot really rewrite your way out of a lack of tests. <laughs> you can rewrite your way out of other problems, maybe, but not out of missing tests.
0: Right. If you don't, in a rewrite, you eventually have to test the thing, because otherwise you don't know that you're rewritten it. Yes. You don't like if you can't prove that you, you know, the same inputs produce the same outputs. You don't. You're gonna just have terrible bugs in production.
1: Yeah, that's a good point because a lot of people start, you know, again, startup mode. You start without any tests uh, because, you know, I'm building one to throw away. Why waste time? I don't even know if anyone will use it. Why spend time writing tests? But somewhere between, I don't know if anyone will use it and, oh, shit, people are using it. I have to rewrite. Uh, You kind of need to introduce tests somewhere in between.
0: Right, or even if when you're at the, oh, it, I, I' you know I've I succeeded. I, people are using it. Now I need to write tests because now yeah. I need to maintain it.
1: Yeah, exactly. exactly that. Uh, any other advice for writing code that is easier to maintain inter- iteratively?
0: The, the standard program I like think I'm not a, a, an expert, but if you were to read the pragmatic Programmer or any of the classic tomes, like you'd want it to be loosely coupled, you want it to have modularity. I am ambivalent on the service versus monolith
1: debate. Aren't we uh, all?
0: <laughs> uh, many many people are not. Um, you know, a well a well-built monolith works better than you know, moderately well-built services, but a badly built monolith performs much worse than a cl- cluster of badly built services. So it's you know, it's one of those well, are you going to write good code? Like, tell me if you're going to write good code and I'll tell you which way to go. Yeah,
1: I mean, (laughs) I I would say that at the end of the day, there's just, it's, it's a hard decision. That's why we cannot be here in the show and tell you, always do a monolith or always do a microservices architecture because, yeah, either one, we have examples of extremely successful monoliths and we have examples of extremely successful microservices and we also have failure stories from both, so... I don't think we can give like this type of advice. But even if you build a monolith, you should. the only way to make it iteratively replaceable is to make it loosely coupled monolith.
0: Right, if you've got a loosely coupled monolith, then you. if you have a truly loosely coupled monolith, you basically have a, a service architecture because they're not impacting or having side effects on each other anyway.
1: Yeah. Do you have advice on actually when is the right time to move from loosely coupled monoliths to microservices?
0: I don't. I have started a few blog articles where I I try to give that advice or or try to come up with a framework for making that decision. And I haven't been able to come up with anything that looks like a sign. Um, Well, from the code standpoint.
1: Yeah, I agree. I don't think it's a code decision. I'm 100% with you.
0: the, the 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 reasons that I have seen it done that have made sense is you want to experiment with multiple technologies, right? If you have a monolith, you have one technology stack. If you have services, you can have, you can change the stack of any service and it'll be fine. Well, I don't know if it'll be fine, but you can do an experiment. Um, and, you know, so that that's a thing of, oh, well, I need to do experiments. Um, culturally, it, when you get to the point where you have multiple teams or dozens of teams, this can become a cultural thing. Uh, you know, I, I, at the place I'm at, we just switched from spaces to, no, from tabs to spaces. <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't rem- I, I can't even, rem- I don't care. Um, but we, 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 we agreed and we've switched the code linter, and I was like, OK, fine. I just loaded the new code linter. And like, I don't care, but people cared. This was a four year debate. Uh,
1: I'm so sorry.
0: <laughs> I, it wasn't really a four year like argument. It was just one of these. Nobody could gather enough momentum to get anybody to agree or meh, the, changing the linter. And so it just wasn't in there. And so it was just inconsistent.
1: Yeah, no. So basically what you're saying is that if you have microservices, every team can decide for itself uh, if they want tabs or spaces. That's the idea.
0: Right. Um, Generally, that is also not a great reason to like. I hate to say conformity is extremely valuable uh, inside a software shop, but conformity is extremely valuable. Nonconformity, uniqueness of expression is extremely, extremely, extremely expensive in software because it greatly reduces the number of people who can walk into a code base and understand it. It, you know, greatly increases your bus factor. Um, it makes every, it just makes, it reduces, it causes more, it reduces the amount of code reuse that you're going to have because the patterns are going to be slightly different. So even if everybody on one team is reusing a pattern, the next team over has to implement the pattern themselves in their own way. Um, I remember an argument I I had many times uh, at at one place was guy would be arguing like, look, I want to build these sports cars. Like I want to have these services and I want them to be fast and super things. And you're building, you know, we call them pickup trucks. Like it's, this is a Ford F-150. It is boring and you put, take whatever, like, you know the that's the services is a ford f-150 and you put your business logic in the flatbed back and off it goes and he's like oh, i want to build a ferrari and i want it to be special purpose and it's going to be fast i'm like okay cool but then you have to maintain every single part in that thing right if, if every service is an f-150 and all that's different is in the bed is in you know it's whatever's in the bed in the back then already 80, 90% of the code, anybody, any developer on the floor can walk in and know where everything is and go straight to the problem. If one thing on the floor is a sports car, good luck.
1: Yeah, I think Tesla discovered it the hard way, that going from one successful model to two successful models is actually pretty hard on the factory floor. Mm. Um, so I'm thinking about, well, I'll move away from the (laughs) car car analogy but there is i don't know if you're familiar there is the google rule for introducing new languages are you familiar with that no you're allowed to have one new language per 5,000 developers is uh, Mm -hmm. kind of the the google law because that's the ratio in google like as the company grew every once in a while they had to introduce a new programming language but they try to have a lot of developers working on this language. You cannot have like one developer who's familiar with the language doing his own thing, because as you said, standardization, we are, even in startups, it, it's a company. I mean, you have to, you have more, as long, the, the moment you have more than one developer, you need to have some level of agreement. Well, as
0: soon as you're a company, you need to have, because it's when you're, you know, if you're doing something as a passion project, I mean, go nuts and do whatever you want it, whatever is fun. But what, as soon as you're a company, right, you, you've actually got a goal. And the goal is to service your clients or your customers or what have you. Like they're, you're writing software for a purpose. And the purpose of your software is not to be interesting software as exactly. much as it pains me sometimes. You know?
1: <laughs> yeah. And that's actually brings us to a good question because... There is a lot of debate about decisions in software, how much should be at the level of the person closest to the code, like at the team level, versus from higher ups deciding, hey guys, this is our tech stack, like it or not, this is how we're doing things in this company. Go ahead and live with it. As you said, like if a CTO go- comes over and says, hey, we are building F-150 trucks. <laughs> uh, this is what you're building. I don't care that you want to build a sports car. This is not a company that is building a sports car. Uh, what's your take on that? Like what? How do decisions from the top or could decisions be done lower level but still get standardized across the entire company?
0: I would like to say yes, they could, but I have never seen it. <laughs> um, which is bad because you know I, I've never seen from bottom up consensus building at, at that level. It, it seems like the developers always are trying to pull apart um, to the company's detriment, maybe to the individual's uh, good or bad. Uh, but there's like at the place I am now, Active Campaign. There's a fairly standard API layer. And then there's also the GraphQL group. Like, oh, no, no, we should be doing GraphQL. And, it, and I'm neither here nor there on GraphQL versus API, but just, I am very much, I am against the GraphQL group because we've already got so much API. And it's like, oh, well, it, you know if we start moving heavy on the GraphQL stuff, now we're supporting, we're bifurcating, we're splitting our efforts. But it, it's a very valid thing. like you, graph, uh, ap- GraphQL is a totally valid choice. And so I I feel like I wish there was a a way um, for developers to get consensus and bring it up instead of eventually needing the the leadership to say, okay, we've made a choice, push down. Because I don't like leadership pushing down. I am very much...
1: Nobody likes it, right? I think leadership themselves usually don't really like it. They would prefer that all developers would figure out whether they want tabs or spaces and get on with it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, So I have a question for you, slightly different tech. A lot of the advice you give here is it applies to anything. No matter if I'm building iPhone applications, I'm building social media, I'm building on-prem software if anyone is still doing it. Uh, it's really super generic engineering advice like it's good it's like the foundations that everything is built on but mm-hmm. it applies to everything do you have any from your experience any specific advice for people who are deliberately building a software as a service that you think is kind of unique that other people maybe shouldn't be doing things in that way
0: hmm. i'm trying to think uh I think collecting a number of SaaS, mostly SaaS anti-patterns, but but that's not advice you should take. It's advice (laughs) you should avoid.
1: Yeah, no, what not to do is sometimes even better advice. So by all means, share that.
0: Um, The first one that comes to mind is is the pattern that I call the drop doom. Basically when you're dealing with customer provided data, customer built data, which pretty much any SaaS will you, a common thing is, Oh, well, I have custom fields. So you have some kind of custom field system to allow people to add their own data to your CRM or, or platform. And a common one is, Oh, well, that's going to be like a drop, uh, a dropdown or a, a list or something. And you just let them, oh, okay, they can add as many as they want. Eventually, you know, cause customers are not programmers. And they don't think about things like big O and, all this stuff, they're going to put too much data in a drop down. Uh, and too much data is like a thousand. That, that's around when your browser is really going to start grinding to a halt. But like I, I saw uh, one hilarious example a, a customer had sent out an email with a drop down of, What is your favorite European city? And they put <laughs> in the, the top, the 10,000 largest European cities. 10,000 so it was a dropdown with 10,000 elements <laughs> and uh this is a you know and, and the the emails had gone out and then they were upset that customers were upset with them because they were sending these emails that just caused their computers to grind to a halt it's like well yes you you can't <laughs> you
1: can't put 10,000 elements in a dropdown you uh, know what even if you could let's say that the browsers were magically supporting it What human wants to look at a list of 10,000 things to make a choice?
0: Yeah, I mean, I assume they're alphabetical, but (laughs) I I don't know. Um,
1: I mean, my favorite city is Rome. This is a lot of scrolling.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I have no idea how many cities similarly (laughs) named to Rome. And Lord help them if they uh, had the translation on. And so they were doing you know, in, in English and Spanish and and German versions of all that data.
1: Oh, this is actually very good advice in itself. If your SaaS company wants to sell in the European market, people care about the languages used.
0: Yes. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, the, the, the drop doom, which is basically allowing, cost, binding any display El, any user interface display elements to an unbounded user generated list, which is not pithy, but you call it a drop doom and it'll stick in people's heads. <laughs> like, Oh yeah. Yeah. You allow customers to have an open-ended list. It, it's going to be bad.
1: Yes. <laughs>
0: um, but is it, I guess going for things that you should almost certainly do if you're writing SaaS, almost certainly multi, multi-tenant, uh, from the get-go, uh, y- you should have a reason not to be multi-tenant. It shouldn't be, oh, well, I'm going to be single-tenant and then I'll figure it out. It's, you no know, no be multi-tenant from the get-go or have a very good reason, like, I don't know, medical. You know, um, in which case, you need to have a very good plan for standing up lots and lots of your stacks. Um, be multilingual or uh, internationalized right from the get-go in... This isn't that hard. Just wrap all your strings in a converter function. Even if that converter function in you know iteration one through you know the first t- two years does nothing but return the original string, you'll be very glad you did this <laughs> later on when you don't have to go back and wrap all your strings in your system so that your convert your language converter can convert them. Just wrap them in a dummy function uh, and, and move along. Um,
1: so t- I'll give you one of mine. Yeah. Tell me if, in your experience, it actually wor- works or not. Uh, be API first. Like even if you're cust- if you're building an expense reporting app, and your customers are accountants and they will never use the APIs, you should still be AP- have the architecture API first, not the whole thing. Like don't do it with the PHP thing where you basically just serve HTML. And the reason is that sooner or later, usually sooner these days, someone mm-hmm. will ask, but how do I integrate your thing with this other thing that I already have? Uh, does it integrate with Salesforce, HubSpot, Zendesk, Zenefits, uh, like whatever it is out there? And the answer should be, yes, of course we integrate. Here's our APIs. <laughs>
0: I'll go you even a, a ha- So I don't even consider that SaaS-specific advice that's, Pretty much if you're writing software, whether it's in-house or external or what have you, it it should be API driven. And the reason for that is if you flip it around, okay, you have something that's only UI driven. Cool, now you have to write some tests, which means you're you're bringing in something like Selenium or God knows what, and you you now have these super brittle tests based on page layout. Whereas if everything is API first, you can then, write something that's going to hit, you know, an integration test is going to hit your API, confirm that the thing happened. And it allows you to build a data generator. Um, One SaaS-specific thing that I I see a lot is, oh, well, we have a staged environment or, you know, developers will work locally and they will, you know, create a branch and they'll set up like two or three elements of whatever it is they're working on and it'll look good and they'll ship it. And, oh, lo and behold, you've mixed up your IDs. Right? You, you somehow crossed some IDs from your call, from your tables but because all the IDs were one and two you didn't notice suddenly you know when the IDs get into the very quickly in production people will notice cuz the IDs don't make any sense but you know those are the kinds of things that will happen if you do minimally minimal data testing and if you don't have API first you can't have you won't be able to write tools you'll you'll build your data for your testing manually which means you build minimal amounts of it um, that I've seen quite a lot, where it, it will bite people. Like, oh, I didn't know this thing would bog down if it had a thousand elements. I only made like
1: five. Yeah, makes sense. Um, you know, hmm. we are pretty much at time, and that was sage sage advice to finish with. So okay. There, Unless there is something that you actually wanted to talk about and I forgot to ask.
0: <laughs> no, I, I'm super excited by the for the community that you built. It's sort of my developer superpower as it were. It's not that I'm a, a great developer. It's that I'm a very good problem decom. I'm very good at problem decomposition and I'm making a pitch here for my own services so uh, <laughs> that I'm not even selling. I just want to do it live, bring me your problems and I can help you decompose them. It is, uh, You will be amazed if you come to me with a problem of like, oh, well, there's, we must rewrite this thing. There's no <laughs> other way. Uh, I guarantee you that with an hour-long conversation, I can find you a, a, an alternative that will have you delivering value to your customers the whole way through. Uh, you can just come on the Never Rewrite podcast and we can talk about it.
1: My bet is so. that nobody is going to take you on it. And the reason is that the people who think there is no choice other than rewrite, they actually want to rewrite. And Mm -hmm. they don't want someone to come in and tell them not to rewrite. Uh, It's usually like there is, you may get managers whose developer told them that they absolutely have to rewrite and they may want a second opinion, but developers who really want to rewrite I don't think they will want anyone to tell them that they don't have to. They secretly kind of know that they don't have to.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. I think that that actually explains a lot of my marketing problem right there. Of, I, yeah, sort of my, my, I have the theory that if I can get somebody on the show, then I can do it with them once live and people see it, they will see that it's valid because it's too squishy uh, to kind of get people to understand what, what I'm going for. But if they if I could do it live or with somebody and record it but oh the light bulb would go off um, but I think you might be right that the people who want to do a rewrite don't want <laughs> they don't want the somebody to tell them why they're wrong
1: Jeffrey thank you <laughs> so much for all your great advice in in the past and hopefully into the future
0: Thank you Gwen yeah I look forward to interacting more with the community and To anybody else who wants to get in contact with me, Uh, thank you for the opportunity to come on your show.